0: If you'll open your Bibles, please, to the book of James, chapter number 1, and while you're finding that, if you could open your Bible to the book of Revelation, chapter number 2, I want us to look at two different verses tonight as we get started on our study of one of the crowns that we hope to receive when we get to heaven. Now, just to review and kind of catch us up to where we are, on these Wednesday nights, we're studying about crowns that will be given uh, by God once we get to heaven, If we have been faithful and if we have done what God wants us to do with our lives. And two weeks ago, we studied about a crown called the imperishable crown out of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we read that that is the crown that God will one day give to those who have taken their Christian life seriously. They have been committed to him. They have lived for Him, served Him, and so one day that crown will be given out. Last Wednesday night, we studied about another crown called the Crown of Rejoicing, or another name for that crown is the Soul Winner's Crown, and this is the crown for those who not only lead other people to Christ, but who plant the seed. And we spent two Wednesday nights talking about the importance of sometimes we're just supposed to plant a seed. We're not necessarily there to, quote, lead a person to Christ. We're there to plant a seed. Maybe we're there to water a seed. Maybe we're there to invite somebody to church. Maybe we're there to give somebody a Bible or something like that. We don't actually see them get saved, but we played a role in their salvation experience. And so when we get to heaven, we will receive Uh, That crown, the crown of rejoicing, the soul winner's crown. And, you know, anytime we see somebody get saved, that's just about the best thing that could possibly happen. And last Wednesday night at the end of the sermon, gave the invitation and we prolonged it. We sang one extra verse. If you were here last week, you remember that. And a young man who was sitting right here on the second row came forward. Uh, His name is Jonathan. And he had his girlfriend with him. I had no idea that they were going to be getting married 3 days later until after the service they they got married last Saturday night and i had no idea that and that i think it's tomorrow he's going overseas because he's in the military but he had never been to church here until last Wednesday night heard the gospel the Holy Spirit convicted him. He got saved. And after the service, virtually everybody had left this room. I was talking to him and to his fiance, who I've known since she was a little girl. And he said, John, I know you can't see it tonight because the sun has gone down and the room's gotten dark. He said, when I first came in this room tonight, I'd never been in this chapel before. He said, but I just felt so lost and so hopeless and so alone. And he said, I looked up at that window, and it's a man who's drowning in some kind of a body of water and he's reaching out his hand. He said, I guess that's to Jesus. And he's asking Jesus to save him. And he said, when I came in this chapel tonight, I felt like that man. And he said, but after I prayed that prayer and got my sins forgiven and got saved, he pointed to another picture. I know it's about dark. You can't see it. But here you see Jesus talking to two of his disciples. He said, now I feel like I'm no longer drowning. Now I feel like everything's okay and I'm all right. And I thought, what a beautiful thing. But his girlfriend, probably members of his family, who who knows who else, along the way of his life, planted a seed, invited him to go to church, shared something about God with him. They, something happened to get him here last week, and then Uh, When the gospel was shared, it was real easy for him to get saved because other people had already done the work. But nonetheless, it's the crown of rejoicing if we have done our part in the salvation of another human being. Now tonight, we pick up with the third of five crowns. There are five crowns mentioned in the New Testament. And tonight, we're on crown number three, and it is called the crown of life. And we read about it in James and in Revelation. In fact, let's just start in Revelation and read that verse first. And then we'll come back and look at the verse in James. Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 10. Jesus is speaking and he said, Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Now, in the Bible, sometimes that phrase ten days is referring to a short period of time. It's not going to last forever. But notice the next sentence. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so Jesus is saying to this group of Christians that he's writing to, you're going to have some real suffering and challenges in your life. It's going to last for 10 days. Now, whether that's 10 literal days or in this context, it's probably not. It's referring to a short period of time. But he says, if you'll be faithful until death... One of these days, you're going to receive the crown of life. Now, go back to James chapter 1. This may be a verse that we're a little more familiar with. In James chapter 1 and in verse number 12, James said, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. That word is better translated trials, talking about testings, difficulties in life. For when he has been approved, literally, when he has passed the test, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so the crown of life is a reward that we hope to receive. Many people will and others probably won't. But we hope when we get to heaven, we'll receive the crown of life. And it's all based on whether or not we have been faithful during the trials, the tests, the struggles, the challenges, and the difficulties of life. And so that's what we're thinking about tonight. How can we receive this crown of life? Well, you're in James. Turn just a page or two to the book of 1 Peter, and I want to show you another verse about trials, because when Peter wrote his letter, he was writing to a similar audience that James was writing to. He was writing to people, Christians, who were going through hard times. And Peter says this... It, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved or you have been distressed or troubled by various trials. And that word various there literally means multicolored trials. In other words, not all trials are the same. You may be going through something tonight that is totally different from what somebody else in this same room is going through. You may be going through a physical illness. Somebody else over here has got uh, a financial problem. And so, and that's what the Bible is saying. Uh, Peter says, you've been grieved by various trials, multicolored trials. They come in different shapes. They come in different sizes. And we could say that they come in different colors. And so, let me just mention tonight, before we get into how we can endure these trials, and hopefully how we can one day receive the crown of life, Because we have responded properly, and we didn't give up, and we kept on keeping on. But before we get into any of that, I want to just classify three different categories of trials. And I think tonight, whatever trial you may be in at this time, I think it would certainly fall under one of these categories. Category number one is what I would call life-threatening trials. You're going through something, and your life is being threatened someone who is uh, battling a serious cancer diagnosis, that would certainly be a life-threatening trial. If, God forbid, this would happen, but if you're here tonight and somebody has threatened you in some way, that they're going to... Uh, harm you? Are they going to do something bad to you if they've threatened you? The best thing you could do would be, if, 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 if it's a serious threat, would be to contact the authorities and, and to report that and to say you don't, you don't feel safe. But nonetheless, sometimes people are experiencing this, and we, would, we might be surprised at people who are in fear uh, for their own safety and even for their own life. And then certainly, we think about our Christian brothers and sisters all over the world who are living in countries that are not friendly to the gospel. And in some of these countries, uh, it's illegal. It's against the law of the country to even be a Christian. And so here are Christians meeting in underground churches and trying to be faithful to God and yet trying to preserve their lives. And I read an article today uh, in a book by David Jeremiah, and I want to just read you about the better part of two paragraphs, because I think it's very interesting. He said, when we think of persecution, we often think of the Roman Empire and the brutal assaults on Christians by emperors like Nero, who were determined to eradicate the church. But the most intense period of persecution in the history of the church is occurring around the world today, right now. In 2017, the organization Open Doors, which monitors global persecution, released a report highlighting the top 50 nations where Christians face the most severe persecution. The bottom line... 100% of Christians in 21 countries around the world experience persecution for their faith in Christ. And And listen to this number. More than 215 million Christians face high levels of persecution. 215 million high levels of persecution. That is a staggering number. That is well over half the population of the United States our brothers and sisters around the world, high levels of persecution. Listen to this. Nearly one in every 12 Christians today lives in an area or culture in which Christianity is illegal, forbidden, or punished. One out of 12. Roughly 8% of the Christians in the world today are living in a, they don't live like where we live. They can't come to a service like uh, we come to tonight. They would be they might be killed for that. They would certainly be punished. Another report, this one published by the group International Christian Concern, highlighted three countries where religious discrimination and persecution have reached a certain threshold of concern. Now, these countries that I'm about to read to you, it's not the high-level persecution, but as the or agencies who study this type of thing around the world have studied. They're saying, we're noticing now a threshold of concern in these three countries. Country number one, Mexico. Country number two, Russia. Country number three, the United States of America. While conditions in the United States are in no way comparable to other countries, said the report, a certain segment of the culture and the courts seem to be intent on driving faith out of the public square. And so if the country continues along the path that it has been on for the last 30 or 40 years, you try to project that 30 or 40 years down the road, and you wonder, would it even be legal for a Christian minister to stand up in a setting like this and say, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven? Or would a liberal court hear that and say that is hate language and that is illegal? Now, I'm not we pray to god it doesn't come to that but i'm just saying that's what the report is is hinting at when it's when it's talking about this there's a there's 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 intolerance towards the spread of christianity and so even in our country it is an issue nothing like in the other countries but it is a, an increasing issue and so there are many people today who are facing life threatening trials another category of trials that i think is probably more common to us hopefully Not too common, but I know that it is common, and that is what I would call life altering trials. Now, in this type of trial, your life's not being threatened. You don't fear for your safety. You're not having to run and hide from somebody who's trying to kill you. But because of something that's happened, your life has permanently been altered. For example, a spouse has died, a child has died, a close friend has died. Uh, you have been diagnosed with some illness. And so your life is not threatened, but your life will never quite be exactly the same as it was before that trial. And some have said you're in the process now of trying to find a new normal. So life-altering trials can be a, a real issue. And then there's just the trial. This is probably what we would encounter on a Day in and day out, week in and week out, basis would be what I would just call a life annoying trial. Your life's not threatened, your life's not really altered, but something is happening. In the grand scheme of life, it's not that big a deal, but when it happens to you, you feel like, man, this is a real annoyance. This is real. The dishwasher starts to leak. Now that's not life threatening, life, but you got to get it fixed. The washing machine. Uh, I was washing clothes back several. Weeks ago, I guess I I was home one day washing clothes. You know how you do when you wash clothes? You put them in there and then you go around doing something else in your house. And I was doing something else and I noticed I didn't hear the washing machine making its noise. And so I went and I looked in there and it had stopped and I opened it and the washing machine had completely broken and I had a tub full of water and all my clothes in there. And I thought, now this is going, it was on a Friday. I thought, this is going to be a long weekend with this situation now that wasn't going to kill me and it really wasn't going to affect my life but how many of you know if you've got water in a washing machine you got to get that fixed right and so I called and I ended up getting it fixed I had to buy a new uh, buy a new washing machine but in other words my life wasn't threatened but the question is when something like that happens how are you going to handle that you I know it doesn't sound like a big deal but sometimes in life when you're going 100 miles an hour trying to do all your other responsibilities, sometimes a situation like that, it can almost push you over the cliff and you feel like, what else is going to happen? Now, that particular day, I wasn't feeling that. But some days you might feel that way. And so the question is, even if it's just an annoying trial, how are we going to handle that? And so the real question, look back at that verse in James, and then I want to get into how, how can we pass the test. Because I know some of you tonight are in one of those three trials, and you're trying to figure out, now, how how can I, with what I'm going through in my family situation, with my my husband or with my wife, with my children, with the situation going on, how in the world can I be faithful? Well, notice what it says. Blessed is the man or the woman. Now, that word blessed means happy. So if we can learn how to endure these trials, be they serious or not all that big a deal, then we're going to be happy, and it says, blessed is the person who endures the trial, for when he has been approved or passed the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him, and so how can we pass the test when we uh, are going through it? Well, I think certainly as Christians, we have a huge advantage over those who are not Christians, don't know the Lord, because what we know that they might not know, or they probably don't know, is that no matter what test we're going through, life-threatening, life-altering, life-annoying, big, serious, not that big a deal. Just got to buy a new watch machine. Not going to change my life, but I do got to get it fixed. And so, whatever the test is, we know this, that the God we serve is very much in control of our lives. You believe that? Say Amen. And that is at the, the core of our Christian faith, that God is in control. And just believing that helps us to go through these trials with a different perspective than we would have if there was no God. In other words, if, if there's no God in heaven and things are just happening. Or, you know, there's some people who do believe in God uh, whose faith is... It's not really a biblical faith, but they believe in God. For example, I think of the deist, for example. And if you've ever studied what they believe, they believe in God, the deity. That's how they get the deity of God. But what they believe is that when God created the world, that he made the world, and very much like you would wind a watch, and then after you have wound the watch up, you put it on your wrist, and you go about your day. So you've already wound it up, and the clock is just it's just running until the battery runs out. Well, there are some people, the deists, and some of our founding fathers, according to some reports of history that you read, and I'm not saying all of them, certainly not all of them, but some of our founding fathers may have been deists. They believed in God, but they didn't believe in God like you and I believe in God. They believed that God made the world, and after he made the world, he took a couple of steps back and the world is running itself. Now, if a person believe that, if I believe that, then what that, what that is really saying is God may have made the world, but God is not in control of the world. He made it. He stepped back, and he said the wind's going to do what the wind's going to do, so there may be uh, a hurricane. The earth's going to do what the earth's going to do, so there may be an earthquake. People are going to do what people are going to do, Hey, I'm not in control of any of that. I made it. And now... But that theology doesn't mesh very well with the Scriptures. Because, for example, I could give it a lot of verses, but, for example, in Psalm 103, in verse 19, it says that the Lord is seated in the heavenlies, or in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. That word sovereign, you may hear that sometime. What does it mean to be sovereign? I wish I had a border, or should have put this on the screen tonight. But the root word of sovereign is the word reign. If you spell out the word sovereign, S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N. Did I spell that right? Is that close to right? Well, at the end of sovereign is the word reign. So when we say God is sovereign, what does this mean? Nobody uses this word except at church. We say God is sovereign. But what does it even mean that God is sovereign? It means that God is reigning, that God is ruling, that God is seated on His throne. God didn't make the world and take two steps back and wish us all the best. No, God made the world. God is seated on His throne, and He is ruling, and He is reigning over everything that is happening on this earth. And so if we believe that, that gives us an advantage over somebody who just says, God made it, and what's going to be is what's going to be. Because if I believe that, I would lose my mind. But I don't believe that. I believe God is ruling, and God is reigning, and God is very much in control of what is happening on the earth. That's what the scripture teaches. And so since we believe that, that God is in control, when we find ourselves in a life-threatening situation, a life-altering situation, or even just a small little life annoying situation, that knowledge, God is in control. He has allowed me to be where I am. Not necessarily that He caused it. and I don't believe that. Sometimes I hear people say, everything that happens, God caused it to happen. I don't believe that. I don't believe Scripture teaches that. I believe many of the things that happen, the devil causes them to happen. And I believe that many things that happen... Uh, sinful human being. I mean, God gave us a free will. And any, any theological truth taken to the extreme will always result in heresy, for example. Somebody could take this teaching in the scripture about the sovereignty of God and run that to the extreme and say, well, if God's in control, then that means God causes everything that happens because God's the one who's in control. But that would be heresy because if you believe that, then you go back to the first book of the Bible, Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. But if you take the sovereignty of God to the extreme, now you're going to say, yeah, they ate that, but since God's in control, God made them eat it. Well, God didn't make them eat it because see what I'm saying? The sovereignty of God to the nth degree has now xed out the free will of man. The free will of man to the nth degree, now exes and nullifies out the sovereignty of God. And so when you study the Bible, remember this. The Bible is the most balanced book in all the world. For example, in Proverbs, my dad was quoting a, reading a proverb earlier in the service. Uh, in Proverbs, it says, answer a fool according to his folly. The very next verse says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Well, it would be easy for somebody who didn't believe the Bible to say, Well, look, here you have it in your own book. It's a contradiction. One verse says, Answer a fool according to his folly, or else, you know, he'll just run wild out there. The next one says, Don't answer a fool according to his folly, or lest you be in a conversation with a fool. Well, which is it? It's both. Sometimes somebody says something that's foolish, and you have to respond to it. Sometimes somebody says something that's foolish. And you don't say anything. You need discernment to know what to do. In each... So the Bible is a very balanced book. For example, it says in the Bible, Jesus said in the Great Commission that we're supposed to take the gospel to the, to the ends of the earth. Well, in another place in the Bible, it says a fool has his eyes on the ends of the earth. Well, now, which is it? You're supposed to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, or if you have to take back the ends of the earth, now you're a fool. Well, which is what's both? We we do have a responsibility to take the gospel to beyond the walls of the church or the end of the earth, but we also have responsibility right here where we are. So, what I'm saying is the Bible is very balanced, and a biblical theology is a very balanced theology, so it's not. The sovereignty of God over here, we have no responsibility or vice versa. So, since we believe that God is in control, that whatever trials we may be going through, He has allowed that trial into our lives. Now, you have to believe that. You have to believe that God has allowed that trial into your life. And... If you don't believe that, then you really don't believe God is sovereign. You believe he's stepped back like on a stopwatch. So I want to make three statements tonight that will help you to look, the answer to the question, how can we pass the test? Here's the answer to that question by looking at it differently. You look at the test differently than you would if you weren't a Christian. My washing machine didn't work. I looked at the test differently. My dishwasher leaked. I said, I have to look at this test differently. Whatever it is that we're going through, we have to look at it differently. And so, as Christians, we can do that. Now, how do we look at it differently? How can you look at your life situation right now, whatever it is? How can you look at it differently so that you will endure, so that you will persevere, so that you will keep on, so that you won't give up, and so that you won't quit. Well, I want to make three statements tonight, and I've thought about this today, and I think this is really uh, probably the most helpful way to look at something differently. Statement number one, and I wish you'd write this down. They're little short sentences, and the key word in each one of these sentences starts with the letter P, so it'd be easy for you to remember. But the first one is to remember this, and you could even say this to yourself There's a purpose in this. Say that with me. There's a purpose in this. There's a purpose in this. So whatever it is that is happening, we have to stop long enough to to apply that truth. There's a purpose in this. I heard James Dobson say years ago, godly counselor, uh, Christian leader, and Dr. Dobson said, there's a fine line between sanity and insanity. And I believe that's true. But I also believe there's a fine line between handling something peacefully and calmly on the one hand and really blowing your stack or getting stressed out or getting all uptight on the other hand. Sometimes it's just very, it's very thin line there between being calm and being stressed out. And so if you remember this, there's a purpose in this that will help you. Uh, something else I read, I know I'm reading David Jeremiah a lot tonight, but just in, this morning, or, uh, when I or this, it was actually later in the day today when I read my devotional, uh, listen to what he said. Very interesting. The scripture is in 2 Corinthians 4.18. Paul said, we do not look at things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So his devotional today is talking about Focus on heaven. Focus on God. Don't focus on your situation. I thought well, this ties into what I'm saying about trials. I, I want to read this. The co-founder of Apple, the late Steve Jobs, was actually fired from his position as CEO of the company before he came back to lead its renaissance. In a commencement address at Stanford University in 2005, Jobs said, "Now listen to what he said after after many years after he'd been fired." I didn't see it then, but it turned out that getting fired from Apple was the best thing that could have happened to me. Many people, David Jeremiah says, Christians and non-Christians alike testify that failure has been a backdoor to success. But even when failure doesn't lead to outward success... Christians can trust that God is working in the midst of their failure. When anyone experiences failure or any kind of affliction, he or she tends to focus on what is seen and what is happening at the moment. Isn't that the truth? When you're going through something, that's all you can focus on is what's happening right now. But for Christians experiencing failure, God is at work in the unseen, shaping our character into the image of Jesus Christ. Only Christians can be confident that God is going to use their failure for a deep purpose in their lives. If you regret a failure in your life, thank God for the unseen work that he is doing in you today. Now, he's talking about failures, but you could apply that to a trial. And so what we have to do is to remember there's a purpose in this. It's not just about the fact that the washing machine's not working or something else went wrong or the car's problematic or the back fence blew down or whatever you're stressed out about it's not it's not about that it's about that there's if God has allowed it there's a purpose in it and so we're wise to try to figure out now God here's what I'm going through and so what is the purpose in this situation number two thing that will help you not to uh to get so frustrated and, 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 and certainly, if you're going through a life-altering situation or a life-threatening situation, you got to know, man, there's a purpose in this. I'm going to trust God, move forward, not giving up. But then you have to say, number two, there's a partner in this. I have a partner in this trial with me, and that is Jesus Christ. And yes, there's a purpose. Yes, there's something he's wanting to teach me in this and some, something I may not even understand right now. But also, as I'm going through this situation, I have a partner, and that is none other than Jesus Christ. And so, if I will partner with Him uh, in, in this situation and let Him lead me, He will guide me to be on the right path that I should be on. And so, just remember, if you're facing something serious, you've got to know that. But even if it's not something that's all that big a deal, to me the most exciting thing about the Christian life is that we get to go through life with Jesus Christ. That is, that is, a, that is a very exciting thing. And I'll give you this silly. This is not life-threatening or life-altering. It's really not even life-annoying. But I'll just give you an ex- one of the most recent things that I, in my life that I have seen Jesus just working in smoothly, and I'm thoroughly enjoying this little project. The house I've been living in, I've been there for about 16 and a half years, and, and uh, while there, I've fixed up a few things, just like you'd expect, live somewhere that long, but I never had noticed something until about three weeks ago. I don't know how I've never noticed this, but I have, let's say on the inside of my house, there are 16 or 17 doors, interior doors. Well, Evidently, the previous owners had started the process of updating the doors because the original doors were just the plain, flat door. But I never had noticed until the other day about half of my doors are that, and the other half of my doors are updated six-panel doors. And I looked at it, and I thought, my doors don't match. Now, this isn't right. And so I thought, I wish they wouldn't have done anything. I would rather have sick, I would rather have them all, the old, I don't care that they're new or old, I just want them to be the same. And so I got looking at that, and I thought, clearly it is not God's will for anybody to live in a house like this. (laughs) And so I'm going to fix this. And I talked to a few friends, and one friend said to me, what you should do is go to Lowe's, and they've got a, you can buy doors up there, and they can come install your doors for you. And so I thought, well, one of these days, that's what I'll do. And so, last Saturday evening, I was home, and my dad preached last Sunday morning, so I had a, really, a very easy Saturday. I was all, I didn't do anything. And so, n- there were no funerals, there was nothing. I had, so last Saturday night, about 5.30, 6 o'clock, I just had a feeling. I just was sitting at home, I just had a feeling, go to Lowe's. And so, I went to Lowe's, and I, I went to the door department, and I met this lady, I told her of my plight, my dilemma, and... Uh, my, the, my total unwillingness to go any farther in life like this. We're going to have to do something. And she said, sir, we can take care of this problem. And she showed me the doors. She said, <laughs> she said. the good news is the door you need to replace the doors you have only costs $50 a door. I said, well, that is, I thought it would have been more. She said, $50 a door. She said, the bad news is it costs $139 to install each one of those doors. I thought, well, that just is what it is. And so I said, well, how do you do it? And she gave me an education in doors, which I would be glad to teach any of you if you don't know anything about it. (laughs) Hollow core doors, solid core doors, slabs, built-in thing, all this. And so at the end, she said, here's the bottom line. If you give us $35, we'll send a man to your house, and he will measure all eight of those doors And you can just order them, and a few days later, they'll come out, and they'll install them. And she said, even the good news is that $35, if you use us, will be applied to your... Which I thought $35 for somebody to come to your house. Good night. Just just nothing. So anyway, the gentleman came to my house and uh, measured for all the doors. And while there, he said to me, he said, I called and left a message on your voicemail. And he said, I noticed from your voicemail that you work at a church and I thought I got to change that voicemail man because <laughs> and he started wanting to talk about God and so we did for a little bit and then he said well I, I, I was just not going to I was just letting him I was listening to him and, and talking to him a little bit and he starts measuring those doors and he said now in a few days we'll call you and we'll come put all this stuff in but the point of that a whole long story is to say replacing eight doors is not life-changing. My, my life will be no different. It's just my house will look a lot better when that project is finished. But the point is, for me, it was much more enjoyable going to Lowe's on Saturday night at the prompting of the Holy Spirit than it would be if I have just done it on my own. And, and even after that, I said, Now, God, I have a busy week next week. I just pray he can come at a time when I will be home. We can coordinate our schedules. And it all worked out just fine. But what I'm saying is when you're going through life, you're not going through life alone. You have a partner. Now, I'm giving you something that's not even a trial. It's just a fun, for me, it's a fun little project. But whatever it is you're going through in life, do it with Jesus. And certainly, if you're going through something that's changed and altered your life, You go through that with Jesus Christ and let him help you through that. And then the third thing I would say, not only is there a partner in this, but you need to remember there's a provision in this. God's going to handle this situation. God's going to work this out, and you're going to be fine. So to me, that's what Christians have that non-Christians don't have. We have those fundamental truths. God is in control, which means there's a purpose in this. God is with me, which means there's a partner in this. I'm not alone. God has promised to meet all my needs, which means there's a provision in this. God's going to work this situation out. And so since I know those things, hey, man, whether it's a life-threatening situation, maybe some of us have even been in a situation, maybe not, maybe so, where we felt like, I'm in a dangerous situation. I'm, I'm actually fearful that something bad might happen. Well, maybe you've, maybe you've been in that. Or maybe you say, no, I've not really been in that, but I've sure had some life-altering situations. Maybe you're in one of those right now. It's threat. Or maybe you say, John, it's not really that, but man, all the kids and the responsibilities and things are breaking, and the car's got to get new brakes, and we don't have the money to pay. The stress is just mounting up, and I feel like I'm about to just blow a gasket. Well, you know, sometimes we may all feel like we're going to blow a gasket, but I'm telling you one thing. If you will look at it differently, you won't blow a gasket. You'll be calm, you'll be peaceful, you'll be clear-headed, you'll be a good witness for Christ. You say, you know what? God's in control. I look at it differently. And you know something God spoke to my heart, I guess, a month or two ago on something? I was thinking one night, and I thought, you know, the only person sovereign over my life is God. People aren't, circumstances aren't situated. God is sovereign over my life. What I want to say to you tonight is as, as Christians, we are never the victim of circumstances. And we're not at the mercy of somebody else. And we're not even at the mercy of the devil. We're at the mercy of God. He is sovereign over our lives. And so whatever happens, we say He has allowed it to happen. And you know what? He's going to take care of me through this. And so I'm choosing to see the unseen. I'm choosing not to focus on what I'm going through. Now, this is really relevant to the person here tonight who's going through something tough and hard and painful and confusing. And got your life spilled upside down. And you're thinking, God, how how am I going to get through this? How can I look at it differently? I don't understand why you would have allowed it. Doesn't make sense to me. But I do believe what the Scripture says. You're sovereign, so I trust you. I'll understand it when I get to heaven. But in the meantime, I believe there's a purpose in this. In the meantime, I believe that there is a partner in this. You're with me. And in the meantime, there's going to be a provision, whether that's financial, if that's what I need, whether it's emotional, mental, spiritual, whether, whether that provision is peace or whatever it is you need. There's always a provision with Jesus Christ. And so the takeaway tonight, yes, do we want to receive the crown of life when we get to heaven? Yes, we do. How do we we receive it? By enduring the trials of life. How do we endure the trials of life? By looking at them differently. Looking at them from God's perspective. Looking at them through heaven's eyes. And if we'll do that, God will give us the strength and the ability to see it differently and to move forward. And to endure, not to get frustrated, not to give up, not to quit, not to throw in the towel. Amen. So, Father, this is the crown, just like all five of these, that we hope and pray that we can receive when we get to heaven. The crown of life. But it is only, God, if we will endure trials. And so, God, we can never endure trials if we didn't have any. And so, God, that must mean that one of the reasons that you allow us to have trials is to test us and to see if we will endure. Will our faith be found pure and genuine or not? With your head about and eyes closed tonight, I wouldn't say that everybody here is going through a trial, but I would say everybody here is going through something. And everybody here tonight has something in your life that perhaps you need to look at differently. And see, that that little shift in how you look at it, that's what I was saying. There's a fine line between sanity and insanity. There's a fine line between staying in faith and getting all upset and rattled and, and nervous and stressed out and panicky and You know, about to lose your mind. There's a fine line between that. And that fine line is how you look at it. So whatever you're facing tonight, would you say, God, here's your prayer tonight. God, help me to look at it differently. Help me to look at it as a child of God. Help me to look at it as an opportunity to trust you. An opportunity to demonstrate my faith. An opportunity to grow. An opportunity to keep a loving attitude. An opportunity to stay kind. An opportunity to remain faithful. Sometimes our faith is stretched. And it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to grow. Now for the person here tonight, like Jonathan last Wednesday night, who's not saved. You're not sure that you're saved. Would you just pray this prayer right now? Say, Lord Jesus. Please come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. I trust you to do it. I trust you, Jesus. And Lord, I ask you during this next song, give me the courage to just come down to the front, or to go down to the front, and to just share this decision with John or with the pastor or with another minister so that I will have confessed you publicly before men. Others here tonight, you've already done that, but you feel God leading you to join the church. Sometimes we have people join on Wednesday nights, and tonight might be your night to come be a part of our church family. So God, bless this invitation song and help those who need to respond. In Jesus' name we pray, and all the people said.